I uh, would like us to look at this passage in Philippians 1, and uh, I have a few things that I want to sort of center around, and then we'll move to three, some, some three particular lessons from it. But I have put the title on it, Death Benefits. Now, that might sound a bit grim, but... Um, you know, when you have an insurance policy and they have it worked out, you do get sometimes it stares down the death benefits. Well, I don't know if you've picked up those marvelous words. I'm, I'm quite sure that some of you have treasured these words of Paul's for years and others are maybe getting familiar with them um, and maybe some in the middle when he said, for, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And of course, the reason he said that was he was in prison. And I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, if I leave that down there. Christianity challenges and changes Every perspective on death and every attitude on death, you may agree with it or you may not agree with it, but it changes the perspective. And there are lots of similarities today with um, what I'll call, I say respectfully, I hope that it's respectful, vague and various ideas about death and what happens after death. Now, uh, last weekend, we were on a coach trip to, to London, and uh, the driver was a, what I would call a regular Geordie. Newcastle man, down-to-earth guy, good driver, good company, did a great job. And uh, I noticed as we were getting off the coach at one of our stops that there was a book, a paperback book, on the dashboard of the, of the coach. And it was How to Improve your mediumship. So he's obviously looking into the idea of becoming a medium. Um, so I didn't really engage him in conversation, didn't get, did, didn't get an opportunity. But it was just quite a strange mix. We've got this down-to-earth guy looking at this very contentious subject. People think about these things. What happens after death? Um, I don't know if you've... Uh, let, me, let me do a quick sounding. Have any of you heard of death cafes. Put your hand up if you've heard of death cafe. I know you have, because I've told you. Anybody? Well, it's a movement. It's a growing movement. It's in France, different parts of England, Scotland. And uh, I was reading an article, uh, I have to say, I'd, I hadn't heard of them until I read this article, an article in the I newspaper. Now, the I newspaper is my favorite newspaper, because where else can you get a paper for 20 pence? Uh, that's, why, that's why I'm particularly drawn to that paper. Um, but it is good. They call it the Essential Daily Briefing, and, and it is good. But this particular article is called Tea and Mortality. Now, that um, might seem a rather strange idea. The, the, the sort of subtitle is, the people who attend death cafes aren't obsessed with dying. They just want to meet up and talk about something which, let's face it, will happen to all of us. And then the journalist actually visited one of these cafes and tried to kind of get a feel for what was going on. A um, couple of quotes from the article. 
A survey by the charity Dying Matters reveals that more than 70% of us are uncomfortable talking about death and that less than a third of us have spoken to family members about end-of-life wishes. But despite this ingrained reluctance, there are signs of burgeoning interest in exploring death. I attended my first death cafe recently and was surprised to discover that the gathering of goths, emos, and the terminally ill that I'd feared turned out to be fascinating, normal individuals united by a wish to discuss mortality. And then later on, uh, and, and this is where, uh, let me put this in before I read this quote. It would be very easy to kind of ridicule this. be easy for me to do anyway. I don't know if it would be easy for you, but it would be easy for me to ridicule this. But I really don't, I'm not citing it in any shape or form to ridicule it. I differ with it, obviously, as a Christian and having the Bible in front of me. I'm bound to differ with it. But this is what one of the quotes was said. Uh, this is uh, someone who works, uh, I presume, in, in some kind of undertaking role. I feel more alive than ever since working in a funeral home, uh, one woman remarked. It has helped me recognize that death isn't a circle between life and death. Sorry, that it isn't a circle between life and death. It is more like a cosmic soup. The dead and the living are sort of floating about <coughs> together. That's very, well, it, it provokes all kinds of thoughts in me. One last quote from the article before we move on. The journalist getting to the end of the article kind of sums it all up and says this. In my experience, when people talk about death and dying, all their pretenses disappear. You see people's authenticity and honesty even among strangers. Although it might sound really weird and wonderful to say, when you attend a death cafe, it just feels very normal. Now, there's all kinds of interesting things to be drawn out of that article because it reveals an awful lot about people's thinking on the subject of death itself and what happens after death. Now, of course, the Bible is a, is a book which is, um, at its heart, a book ab about life and death issues. That's what makes it special. Now, last year, because a friend of mine lost her sister and she had requested a humanist funeral, I went to my first humanist funeral. Never been to one before. Don't know whether I'll go to one again. But what was said during the course of that funeral was the exact opposite of every conviction I have about life and death. And it was very interesting. One of the things that struck me very forcibly was, was someone trying to find hope where there was none to be found. And again, I say that sensitively, not in a ridiculing way. Now, the ultimate picture, the ultimate picture from a Christian point of view is this, that it talks about in the Bible, and, and we, can, we can kind of sum it up, as a resurrection from the dead, not a resuscitation, a resurrection from the dead on a global scale and people, um, and that every believer rather has a resurrected body which is like the resurrected body of Jesus which was solid and he emphasized that in his appearances and then that is followed by a lasting life in that new body 
in a whole new universe that the Bible describes as a new heavens and a new earth. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't think there's anything that will. Now, you may, some of you, I don't know if you're visiting here, you might think, well, I'm not sure, I've never even thought about that. Those of you who are Bible readers and, and think about God's word, that's the big picture. You read it carefully in many of its different places, and it says that. But what happens to a Christian when they die before that? Because that's at the end of the present world. What happens before that? Well, now, interestingly enough, the Bible, it, it really, the reality of the spiritual world is taught all over the Bible. And so give me, give me some examples of that. There is an example in the Bible of, of someone, and indeed um, others at different points, being drawn up to heaven from earth. Most notably, Elijah. So it's a very strange story in the Old Testament. There's an example in the Bible of two men, Elijah being one of them, who actually come from heaven to earth and appear on the mountain with Jesus. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration because his whole physical form was transformed and he was shining. It's incomprehensible to us. And uh, so there's an example of that. There's an example of angelic armies in battle mode in the Old Testament where uh, the prophet prays and a young man's eyes, as it were, the eyes of his, his vision are opened and he sees this host, this army. And he, he, can't, he cannot believe his eyes. Then there's another example in the New Testament of a heavenly host, but not in, in military war mode, but in celebration mode. Where? Christmas. The angels appear and celebrate the birth of God's Son. So actually, if you, if you, if you look through that throughout the Bible, you find these these, the interactions between heaven and earth. What does that tell us? And uh, Now, of course, when you come to a subject like this, we need to be careful that where Scripture ends, we don't allow mere speculation to begin. God has not told us a lot of things we would like to know. Remember that, that, that God has deliberately withheld information from us. That is his will and that is his wish and that's what he's done. But he has told us much. Jesus promised a dying man when he was dying, a man next to him on the cross, he, he promised him that that very day, the day of his death, a shameful, brutal death, that the very day of that death, he would be with Jesus in paradise. That was the word he used. And we learn from other parts in the Bible that paradise is another name for heaven. We hear it a lot on the television in particular contexts. But actually, it is the dwelling place of God. Uh, Paul made that clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to read about it. Now, Paul is speaking to us here, and I want to focus on a, just, just a couple of phrases, really. And we'll come down and narrow this down for a, for a short focus and meditation together. Don Carson wrote these words. He's a Bible scholar and he's done a very helpful book on Philippians. But he said this and it, it really struck me. What a person says while unjustly incarcerated and facing the possibility of death is likely to be given more weight 
than would be the case if that person were both free and carefree. It's a little bit like saying, if I can put it in the context of your church here, it's a little bit like saying, Paul, Paul Howell, pastor here, that he's in prison and he's not sure whether he's facing a death sentence or not and he writes a letter to you as a church. I tell you, you'd be listening very carefully to every word. And that's really what Don Carson's saying. Because that's exactly the position of this man who's writing these words. He's not writing in a comfortable study. He's not writing in some kind of a theological faculty in a university. He is in prison. And furthermore, he is facing the likelihood of a death sentence. So you have to understand that when you hear these words, and particularly the words I'm going to quote to you again, remember that. And the thing about Paul is this. He does not know what is going to happen. He makes it clear in the passage, I don't know whether I'm, I, I'm in here for, for the execution or whether I'm going to be released. I don't know. But he does say that he knows that the prayers of Christians are important and effective. So he really values the prayers of the Christians. Our prayer meetings are important. He suspects that he will be freed, but he doesn't know for sure. However, his overriding desire is to serve Jesus Christ and his church. And his view on the whole matter is this. If I live, I will go on serving the church. If I die, I hope that in dying for Christ, I will glorify him by my death. That's his perspective. So it's, it's tremendous perspective to have. I mean, Don Carson says elsewhere in his book, he says, what do you do with people like that? What are you going to do with them? You put them in prison, you can kill them. Well, they are satisfied that they will serve the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever the circumstances. And the thing is this, that his perspective on his life is that living means enjoying and serving the Lord Jesus Christ and serving his church, his people, those who belong to him, those who need to hear about him. And his perspective on dying is summed up in two classic expressions that are well known to people who read the Bible. And the first is this, to die is gain. Gain. You've got to weigh up these words. They're simple words of these. They're not complicated words. To die is gain. And then he says, to depart, and so that's the idea of leaving this life, and be with Christ, which is better by far. Well, of course, it would be better by far when you think of a prison cell. But he means more than that. Now let me say something here that's important. This man is not a man who is in despair. This is not a man who wants to throw his life away. This is not a man who's reckless about looking after his life. This is not a man who's so full of negativity about life that, that he's just longing for death. That would be a mistake to read all of those factors into this passage. That's not the circumstances. He values his life greatly. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that one thing he really doesn't want to do is he doesn't want to die. He, wants his, he doesn't want his spirit, as it were, to be naked without his body. He wants to be clothed in his everlasting body. So he, he's quite clear about that. This is not a man in despair. 
And he has an amazing sense of usefulness and purpose and direction. And that makes all the difference in, your, in the world to your life and your living and mine. You know, if you can wake up each day and you have a direction and a purpose, that is great. There are people who would give almost anything for that. That's Paul. He's not, he's not someone who's, who just wants to, to, to rush on to the end of his life. Not at all. So don't, don't, don't think that when he says these words. Now to fill it all in, you would need to read Romans chapter 8. You'd need to read two, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'd need to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You'd need to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. If you read all of those chapters, you'd really begin to get a picture of Paul's view on, on this whole matter. So let's just read uh, some of these verses again, and then all I want to do is draw out some things that tell us, and I, I think these verses tell us about life, sorry, death for the believer before the grand climax of history. There's an in-between. Theologians sometimes call it the intermediate state. And it's, quite a, it's, it's not as straightforward as you think, but I want to draw out certain deductions from these words that may help you to think about that. And, there, you know, there, listen, if there's people around the country and in other parts of Europe gathering in death cafes to talk about these issues, well, then surely we can talk about them from our Bibles in a Christian church. But let me read the words again. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, you know, I, that I'm really going to, stand my ground here, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. There's his perspective. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for, for you that I remain in the body. Because he he taught the church. He planted this church. He taught them. And so on. So here's the first thing. And there are three simple things. Simple in the sense that I can state them simply. They will require some thinking about. The first is this. That between when a believer dies, there is a conscious deliverance. Freedom. Escape. Transplant. Now I couldn't decide which word to go for, so I thought I'll put all four words in. So when a believer dies, there is a conscious deliverance, freedom, escape, transplant. Not merely from prison. He's in a prison, isn't he? So not merely from that prison. Not even seeing the body as a prison, which is a platonic idea. Greek philosophy. The body's a prison. It's a dead weight. Get rid of it and let the spirit go free. That's not Christian thinking. Even though in the in-between position, that's what happens. There's more to it than that. But he, what he means is freedom from every hindrance in knowing his Lord. Those of us that are Christians, we know that our journey is up and down. We live in a fallen world. We fall. We fail. There are difficulties. There are sorrows. There are hardships. There are things that we have to face, battles that we have to fight. This is all part of the Christian life. But when we come to die, we are delivered from all of that. We are free from all of that. We are transplanted away from all of that. We escape from all of that. 
consciously. That's important. Consciously. And he says, and, and this is how I know this, because he says to depart and be with Christ. Now, this is so simple, it's, it's deceptive. Give you an example of it. Um, you say that some of you may have your family members that live in all different parts of the country or even different parts of the world. And say what, what maybe if you haven't saw a son or a daughter or somebody for a few years and then they come to visit you and you're telling a friend and you just say to them, you know, last week I spent the week with my daughter. Or I spent the week with my grandchildren. Now that word with says it all. You were with them. You were with them. Now, when I finish here this evening, I've got to go to another church this evening, to another service. And I shall say, I had a really nice time with the people at Escape, at Christ Church. You see, it's very significant, that term. And Paul says, I will be with Christ. Now, what does that conjure up to your mind? With him. I'll say some more in a minute that will, that will maybe develop that a little bit further. But I want you to think about that. To be with him. Or again, take, take another example where um, you're going through some real difficulty. You know, you maybe got to go to the hospital for some treatment. It's a common thing, isn't it? And uh, um, somebody goes with you. And so, you know, you're sat in the hospital and you're waiting for the result of some tests or you've got to go through some tests and there's somebody there, a close friend, a loved one, and they're with you. I mean, the word with, isn't it? It's only a small word, but it means such a lot. Oh yeah, I went to the hospital last week. It, it was a bit, it was a bit rough, but um, she was with me, or he was with me. He will be with Christ. That's his perspective. Does that sound like being unconscious? Nothing like it. Doesn't even get close. Second thing, conscious. I'm going to use that word every time. Conscious enjoyment, engagement, and interaction. Conscious enjoyment, engagement, and interaction. The spiritual aspect of our being embraces the intellectual, our minds, our creativity, our appreciation of things. And the mind of Christ mattered to Paul. A theologian, a very eminent theologian in the UK, some years ago, over 20 years ago, said that... Um, said something that stuck with me all those years and never forgotten it. Made me think many a time I've pondered it. He said this, mathematics are the thought patterns of Jesus Christ. And you think about that. Because all the complexity of the law of maths and physics and all that's in and that's bubbling about in the universe and the scientists have the privilege of exploring and just playing at the edges, it is all from his mind. Paul talks about the mind of Christ. He talks about joy. As I was studying on this, this um, passage, you know, you read through the whole book. It's, Philippians is only four chapters. And it was pressing in on me, making a claim to be my favorite book in the New Testament. It's so good. It's so rich. It's so warm. 
It's overflowing, despite the circumstances of the writer. And uh, he talks a lot about joy. And Jesus, he sees as being a source of unequaled and even inexpressible joy. In other words, he couldn't put it into words. And beyond the prison walls, he sees a world of interaction. You know, we're interacting. We've been interacting with the music and the worship and, the, and thinking about scripture. We are interacting now in our minds. And when the believer dies, there will be this wonderful interaction between God and us. And those Christians who have gone on before us, they are consciously delivered and they are consciously enjoying their interaction with heaven and the Lord of heaven. Now, where we have to be careful is we don't know exactly how that works itself out. But we have a lot of examples in the way life is. Think of your appreciation of music. Think of your appreciation of um, a great writer, a great plot a great piece of literature or, or, or poetry. Or it may be a scientific thing where you, you just find great pleasure in examining something saying, this is how it works. Now, where did all this come from? It came from the image of our creator in, in us. And so one thing for sure is the intellectual uh, aspect of our being will be thoroughly engaged in heaven. Not some kind of suspended inactivity. So you just got to think about it. I mean, he said to die is gain. So in other words, when he leaves this life, he's going to be getting things. Pure. And special. Wonderful. He says a bit more about it in um, 2 Corinthians 5. The third thing, conscious prospects, anticipation, and looking forward. Now, we're more or less getting to the end, aren't we, of uh, the summer season. But you know how you look forward to your holidays? You do look forward. I mean, I'm sure most of you look forward to your holidays. I know holidays can be sometimes stressful things. But generally speaking, we look forward to them. That sense of anticipation. It's a lovely thing, in fact. And the reverse happens when you come back because then you get a bit down. And, uh, oh, you can do. And this is important because death is not the end of all hope. It's a transfer of hope. Or rather, it's, it's, it's a transformation where that hope takes on a new perspective. You see, it's interesting that for, for many, many people, Death is merely a transfer of what was hope, when, where there's life, there's hope. And when that's gone, you then have a situation of it transfers to memories only. That's not the believer's experience. Paul understood the resurrection. He writes in this same letter in chapter 3, he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus and how he wants that in his life now and the way in which that is his hope. He also says this in chapter 3, verse 20. And, and, and get this, because it's, um, it, it's remarkable. Um, 
But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the grand climax when he returns. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, everybody wants to transform their body. Why is there a gym over there? Every, I mean, looking around, I, could see, I see some bodies that could do with a little bit of transformation. Um, uh, couldn't we all? But actually, Paul says that our bodies physically will be transformed by a, the power of Christ, and they will be glorious. See, it doesn't tell us everything. It just kind of opens a door for us to think about. And it talks in, in 1 Corinthians 15 about power as opposed to weakness and strength and endurance. There are hints of capacities increased. Well, we could go on for a while meditating on that. But also Paul anticipates a celebration in the future. I'll give you an example of that. Because Paul planted this church in, in Philippi. I think, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, when I first came here a couple of years ago, I think you were actually working your way through Philippians. It seems to, to, to ring a bell to me. But in chapter 2, in verse 16, Paul says this. Um, well, he says this. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And he says, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And what he's, what he's talking about, he anticipates being with these believers in that new situation and really celebrating it. I mean, if I can put it like this, it's just a little bit of speculation. But it's, for those of you that know the story, Acts chapter 16, one of the first people to become a Christian there was, was a jailer, probably rugged uh, Roman centurion uh, good, did an honest day's work for an honest day's pay and he, he through an earthquake and everything he, he heard the gospel and he believed it's a bit like Paul anticipating having put in his, his arm around this old jailer I don't know I'm calling him old I don't know if he was old or not um, but he, he, and, he, and saying to him do you, do you remember that night in Philippi when the prison was shaken, but your heart was shaken and you sought the Lord Jesus. He, he anticipates a celebration with these people. See, even, and, and so there's, a, there's an anticipation between death now and the end, the return of Christ. Always remember that. The intermediate is temporary. God has bigger plans ahead. It's very, very clear in the New Testament. There may be disagreement about the precise details and how these things work, but all Christians are solidly engaged and united on the return of Jesus Christ and the ushering in of a whole new age. It's that big. It's that big. And uh, you have as an alternative, well, one alternative, because there's many, that, that, that lady who talked about a cosmic soup and the living and the dead floating about together. There's a bit of a contrast between that and this, to put it mildly. And so the Christian message changes everything about life and death. Now, if you're someone here who knows very, very little about Christianity, 
let me urge you to find out more. This is a great place to come and do that. And you can do it in this fashion, or you can do it on a one-to-one. But you must, if, I mean, if, if there's any truth in this at all, you have to find out more about it. And those of us that embrace it uh, and believe it, well, it's got to influence our lives and influence our thinking and energize us. You know, we're engaged in something that is absolutely magnificent. Now, what I want to do now is just close with a quotation from Lord Coe. It was something, if I remember rightly, I remember hearing him say this, and I thought, yes, that's a good quote. And I could use that in different contexts. And it is actually from the opening ceremony of the Paralympic Games. And I think what he was talking about at that point was, he was sort of like, he knew what was coming in the opening ceremony, nobody else did, and, and, and so he said this. Prepare to be inspired, dazzled, and moved. And really, that's exactly how we should be. As we contemplate the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he secured something, and then he rose again from the dead. Every Sunday is resurrection day. That's why we're here on this day. It's resurrection day. And this, and really, as we look at it, and as we think about what happens after we die, and what happens after that, we need to be inspired and dazzled and moved. We certainly will be when we experience it. But even now, by way of anticipation, we should be reflecting on it, considering it. Conscious deliverance, freedom, escape. Conscious enjoyment, engagement, and interaction. Conscious prospects, anticipation, and looking forward. That's what Jesus Christ gives us. And we thank him for it.